Welcome to My Brother, My Podcast. Oh, fuck. Damn it. I know that the fucking- Steven, do not remove this. This is all going into the episode. So keep going. Keep going. I deserve this. All right. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, first ever Patreon-exclusive episode. I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Well, I wanted to give Emily a chance to introduce the podcast, and in classic <laughs> fashion, she fucked up right away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, you know these Patreon uh, episodes are going to be special. Yeah. <laughs> Usually we go through the Lord of the Rings films, one scene at a time, or sometimes the Rings of Power television show, one episode at a time. These Patreon episodes are going to be an altogether different beast. Wait, we'll say half different. (laughs) We want to use these exclusive episodes in two ways. One, to explore the world of Tolkien beyond the confines of the visual adaptations we focus on, but also to discuss other topics that extend to other realms beyond Middle-earth. On the Lord of the Rings side, we hope to get some guests and experts to discuss Tolkien's work, analyze some of the video games based on his world, and possibly dive even deeper into some of the book stuff we can only casually or superficially analyze in the normal course of podcasting. Beyond Arda, Emily and I also want to discuss everything else that falls under our interest umbrella. I imagine we will do many a Star Wars episodes (laughs) given time, and at least one about The Simpsons because I'm a stupid baby who needs the most attention. (laughs) Em and I share a lot of similar music tastes, which could make for a fun episode, and we may also want to just opine about the latest and greatest art and media we've been consuming. Today, we are going to give y'all the chance to get to know us a little better, so we will be going back and forth asking each other some questions and taking some submitted by patrons. Uh, Many of these questions are not Lord of the Rings related, though there are a couple in there. To give you a quick preview of what some of our future Patreon episodes are going to look like, In November, we're going to do uh, the Tolkien Theory of History, which uh, I'm sure Emily has something spectacular planned. I don't mean to hype it up too much. (laughs) Uh, By December, we are going, uh, in December rather, we are going to discuss uh, the new Disney Plus Star Wars series, Andor, which I'm literally still pounding my chest after watching (laughs) episode four a couple hours ago. I I am in love with the show. Then in January, we will be doing an episode on the extended edition scenes from Fellowship of the Ring. And then after that, we will see where we go. So I guess maybe we can start telling more about ourselves by telling how we met. Emily, do you remember how we met? I See, I was trying to remember this the other day, and I think it is because of the Star Wars group chat. I think that has to be it. Um, but my memory is so shot through the pandemic that I was like, there's no way it was that. And I think it is. Am I totally talking out my ass here? 
I think you gotta you gotta be on the point there, just because I feel like we were probably in the same like milieu of leftist pop culture tweeters who are like alternating between tweeting about Star Wars versus like the latest like drama with like DSA or some bullshit <laughs> like that. Uh, but like I like I definitely felt like we were not like in completely different circles of Twitter. No, uh, but I would say the the Star Wars uh, DM on Twitter that we got into was kind of was where it took off. Was that like dating back to the last Jedi era Star Wars? Or is this something that's like post-Solo approaching Rise of Skywalker Star Wars? Do you have any idea? I think it may have been like immediately after The Last Jedi came out. Because I do remember tweeting at some point, like not adding me to all of your Star Wars group chats is an act of like violent racism against me or whatever. And like <laughs> immediately getting someone adding me to that chat. And I had to send a message to the person who added me being like, I, it was a joke. I'm so sorry. Like, don't feel like you have to bring me into this space. And I think the reason I tweeted that was literally because uh, all of the insane discourse around <laughs> The Last Jedi. So, yes. Yeah, I would bet good money that our friend Luke, Luke is amazing on Twitter, is the one who brought me into the Star Wars group chat, and he may very well have brought you in. I think The Last Jedi was the first point I realized, like, oh, I don't need to see thousands of opinions on Star Wars yeah. uh, with my eyeballs. I can work on building a community of people I actually want to talk about this with who have the same sort of artistic lens and, like, not overly like reactionary takes about stuff. Um, so I think that was kind of, cause I, I feel like that's also when a lot of the DMs I am in now really started forming and coalescing. Yeah. Um, it, cause now I'm in like a Star Wars DM, a Marvel DM, Lord of the Ring DM, uh, obviously Game of Thrones. Uh, but like, I really feel that's when like the private group chats really started taking off as like, I, we can't be subject to the Star Wars opinions of the masses. It's just unhealthy for the brain. Yeah. Well, so I think this kind of actually coincides with like a weird bit of like online fandom history generally. Cause like, and I think about, yeah, I guess it is about like four or five years ago now there was like a definite turn kind of across the board um, away from more public facing forums for fans. So that's like, whether that's like, Tumblr or whether it's Twitter or like a lot of fan groups on Facebook, like a lot of people started shifting over to either like group chats or to like Discord. Um, and it, it is kind of funny because I cannot possibly speculate on this because I really have no evidence one way or another. But I suspect that a lot of the ridiculousness around The Last Jedi may have actually like kind of catalyzed that kind of turn towards like or I guess return towards like the message board ish style of fandom as opposed to the kind of very front-facing, like, Twitter account, Tumblr, blog style of fandom. And if anyone listening to this has better insights uh, on, I guess, fandom history writ large, and please absolutely uh, hit my DMs up, because I really would love to know if that was, like, actually a trend or if I'm just a fucking bullshitter. <laughs> uh, when did the initial Tumblr exodus happen? Was that around the same time? Or was I that think... a little bit before? Oh, I think it was like 2015 or 2016 because okay. like Tumblr's thing is weird because it's like correlated to when the company got bought out and then when they got weird about porn. And so it may have actually preceded some of the Twitter based stuff, uh, I think. Yeah, no, that would that, that would make sense. Um, so basically, the story of how we met is we don't really know um, <laughs> because we spend way too much time online and years literally blur together at this yeah. point. Um, but if there's a reason we're friends, we can just blame it on The Last Jedi or credit <laughs> The Last Jedi yeah. is rather how the two of us would take it. So of the many great things The Last Jedi did, it also brought me and Emily together. 
Yeehaw. Thank you, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> so we can also talk about how we came up with this podcast and what our mission statement was and how it all kind of came together. Um, I hate to break it to Emily, but they were actually not my first choice. Um, and that's nothing to do with Emily per se. It was more, um, I was going through a radical shift in my life in terms of my job and my relationship status. And, um, I really needed to hold on to Lord of the Rings with all my life. So I figured why not do a podcast about it? Um, the film specifically, cause that, like I've said annoyingly a lot, the Lord of the Rings films is, you know, what I love the most. And I was looking for someone who's just like, Hey, I want to get on mic and I want to talk about why I love this pod or why I love this podcast, why I love th these movies. And I love the world because I have been, you know, fully immersed in the books ever since the last decade or whatever. But um, I actually just kind of reached out to a couple of what I would call IRL friends, <laughs> um, people who I have met in flesh and blood and, you know, sent text messages with and have a, I would call more, I don't know how you say it, but it's not a relationship that's only through like Discord and Twitter. It's yeah. um, someone that, you know, I go to Philadelphia and I see them or I go to LA or I go to Game of Thrones conventions and I see them. Um, and then after my first two choices kind of fell uh, short, they, for various reasons, just wasn't a great time for them to get into the podcasting game, which I don't think there's ever a good time to get into the <laughs> podcasting game. Um, and then like at that point, Emily became the obvious choice. Um, I have to say I was a little bit wary because I have nothing but positive things to say about the Lord <laughs> of the Rings films. And Emily at this point was already going on rampages every day on Twitter, <laughs> decrying <laughs> Peter Jackson's limited vision and scope, um, which thankfully uh, the Rings of Power is making her reconsider all those takes now. Yeah, he's the best filmmaker to have ever lived. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> But yeah, so um, is there anything you want to say before we get into like our initial like kind of planning stages and all that stuff? Um, I think, mm, yeah, so I guess like because I think th this podcast is really funny for me in some ways because like I've never done um, like I've always kind of hung around fan spaces, um, but mostly in like very limited senses. Like I've never done anything kind of like to like anything material to show that I am interested in like the things that I'm interested in um like I've never been to any conventions I don't tend to like do things like cosplay or whatever um mostly because I'm wildly untalented at those uh crafts but so like thinking about the podcast was like one of those things where I was like oh wow that is like such like a commitment and like um like, like it is kind of planting your flag in the sand in a certain way in terms of like how you engage with fandom. And it was such a change for me from like the stuff that I was used to. But then there was also that like a horrible brainworm in my brain uh, as opposed to the other places that brainworms are. Uh, that was like, do it because you will want to like yell into a microphone. Uh, oh, God, what's the fucking... Um, Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh style. I want to become the Tolkien Rush Limbaugh. Uh, and so it was like kind of one of those moments where I was like, yeah, yeah, great. Like totally reframe how you engage with fandom. Nothing could go wrong. <laughs> hey, nothing has gone wrong so yes. far. Um, I think it was in that time when I was like planning this. And like I said, I had a lot of like things happening in my life at the time. And I saw the Nicolas Cage movie Pig, which is a movie I really enjoyed. Mm. Um, and there's a part in there where Nicolas Cage is saying is like, we get so few things we actually care about in life. Um, and that kind of lit a light bulb over my head is like, yeah, there are only a few things I actually care about. And it would be nice to be able to 
leave my stamp or leave my commentary or at least put voice to my love to that officially. I was already doing it with Metal Gear Solid, which are my favorite video games. I had kind of covered Game of Thrones, which, you know, indirectly allowed me to cover my favorite books of all time, which is George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. But I really didn't have something where it's like the Lord of the Rings films are my favorite movies. I have not like put any kind of official voice to my love for it. So that's kind of why that came about because this is the one thing I haven't talked about in an official capacity that I would love to spend years like breaking down literally nine hours of film and mm. we're well on our <laughs> way with that. Yeah, word. So I guess uh, we can ask some questions to each other. Um, you got some notes here. Why don't Why don't you fire off this first one? <laughs> yeah, okay. Actually, I'm going to go in reverse order because I think the this one is the better one. Uh, so one non-Simpsons family Simpsons character can get added to a single scene from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Which character and which scene? Oof, oof. Okay. So I am going to insert... Uh, Superintendent Chalmers into the Council of Elrond. <laughs> and when Frodo brings forth the one ring, he's going to say something to the effect of the successor of Morgoth, uh, who's persisted for 2000 years, localized entirely into one piece of jewelry, <laughs> like something like that to that effect. Yeah. And, and then he'll ask, uh, can I hold it? And Elrond will just say, no. <laughs> and that'll be yeah. the end of that. So That's a big all. steamed hams version of uh, the Council of Alrond, I guess. I had no time to think about this. So if I had more time, I could probably come up with a better answer. That, no, that's really good because I do like the um, Principal Skinner Alrond uh, read. And I think that should be the approach that every actor to play Alrond from here until the end of days should absolutely go with that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I so I am someone who like honestly sympathizes with uh, Seymour Skinner. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he is literally kind of what I am now, a boring old single man. I don't live with my mother, though I do see her pretty regularly. Uh, but I'm the kind of guy who will like stand in front of like a laundry detergent vending machine and just complain about how all the choices are pretty much the same. <laughs> uh, and that's basically like where my lifestyle is at this point. I'm just kind of a boring old man, more or less. Yeah, I think that's legit. I also think it's important to have like a like a Simpsons character that um, you relate to, but not in the way that you're like, I'm going to go out and buy a T-shirt with this person to tell the world how much I relate to them. <laughs> I'm just uh, slowly pushing my stack of Seymour Skinner shirts out of camera so no one can see them. <laughs> I love what them. about your answer to this question? Oh, God. Um, so I went back and forth on this and I was like, um, there's got to be something really good with like Ralph or whatever. But then I settled actually on um, Millhouse in the last March of the Ents. Um, and I just want him <laughs> going. It's all coming up Millhouse uh, in an otherwise flawless and beautiful scene. Oh, my God. I can't believe no one's made. I don't think I've seen a shit post with, uh, you know, Mil uh, Milrose. No. Uh, Millhouse's like raised pant cuffs with the flooding of Isengard. That is absolutely a shit post that needs to occur. Um, anyone listening to this, if you create that for me, I will give you a kiss on the lips. Yeah. Um, is that, uh, that might be threatening assault on our podcasters. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually good to be like 10 minutes into the first Patreon episode and, and doing like threats of violence. And now that we've kicked open this door, I'm going to threaten everyone and everything for the next however many minutes. 
We'll definitely do at least one Simpsons Patreon at some point, maybe just like go over some of our favorite episodes and bits. But just here now, um, do you have some favorite characters, especially the ones outside of the Simpsons nuclear family? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would say all of mine are kind of lame because they're like, number one, mostly characters whose names I can't remember, like Milhouse's little girlfriend, who's played by uh, the uh, secretary from Twin Peaks. Samantha uh, Stanky. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. And that whole episode is a, a masterclass. Um, or they're just like really grim ones. Like, I really like Lenny and Carl for some reason. Um, I, every time they're on screen, I'm like, this is going to be a top tier episode for me. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, in the latest House of the Dragon episode, this will be like a month and a half old by people hear it. So if you're avoiding spoilers, this is very minor. But um, there's a character named Lenor, um, and he has a boyfriend named Carl. <laughs> and then our friend Jess in the Game of Thrones chat dubbed them Laney and Carl. And I am just <laughs> unable to see that, uh, like unable to unsee that. It is Holy like perfect. Shit. And when I recorded with Emmett over at Not a Cast, I kept referring to them as Laney and Carl. <laughs> Surely that has to be a cognizant choice. Like, surely nobody has escaped the like cultural grip of The Simpsons enough for that to fly. Uh, I also am like a big fan of Martin, um, the little yes. gay nerd. Um, just because <laughs> even even though I am unfortunately heterosexual, um, I sympathize a lot because I was a flamboyant student. Not like flamboyant, but like. <laughs> I was a nerd. I knew everything. And I, I was the guy, oh, pick me, teacher. I'm ever so smart. I know the answer. That was absolutely me. Um, so I really got along with that. But also, he's someone in that Simpsons world in Springfield, I guess, that is very comfortable in his own skin, even though he's weird. Like, yeah. he is proud of being, you know, the queen of summer. Um, he is fine letting his ass hang out in his uh, destroyed swimming pool. So I really love Martin Prince. Yeah. God, what a good one as well. Because um, he is kind of like, if Lisa didn't have the, like, I guess kind of mystique that she has by virtue of one big part of the core cast, but also, too, by virtue of being Lisa Simpson, like, that is, like, he is very much Lisa, but less ideological. <laughs> Maybe I will I adopt him as my new uh, icon in life. So let me ask you the next question. <laughs> One Lord of the Rings character gets a gun with a bullet. Who? You have what bullet in here? Are we talking about like time travel bullets? Like the one that tried to kill Captain America and Captain <laughs> America number 25? Or do you just mean <laughs> a character gets a gun and a bullet? I, yeah, I definitely <laughs> meant a gun and a bullet. And I'm sure that I was uh, avoiding listening to something when I was typing that and transcribed the wrong word. <laughs> um, God, so we do that. I feel like this this like question comes up every single like. I don't know, six month period on uh, Twitter. And my answer is always quite lamely. Um, it should be uh, Pippin. Um, and at any point, he gets to use the bullet whenever he wants, because the funnier bit would be waiting for the gun to go off. Um, but I actually think it would be um, much, much funnier uh, to give Sam the bullet just to see at what point he cracks and clocks Gollum. Okay, you said Gollum. I was expecting you to say Frodo. Um, <laughs> Sam just starting class war out of nowhere Hell during yeah. the mythical quest to destroy the ring. Oh, man. I, God, who do I want? I mean, if we're just talking about who should be shooting the bullet, it should definitely be Legolas. He is definitely the best sniper in Middle Earth, as far <laughs> as I can tell. But is, is that what I want? You know what? I'm going to give the Balrog the gun just because, <laughs> well, no. I, 
I don't want to give it to Balrog because if I give it to Gandalf, I can call him Gundalf, which nice. is just kind of fun to me. But yeah, let's give the Balrog the gun and let's give him a big gun. <laughs> or should we give him like a really small gun, like the cricket from Men in Black, like the oh little God. tiny handgun? <laughs> oh, no. Holy okay. Shit. here Here's an answer. Um, I don't even need bullets here. Uh, so sorry, this is going to get into very minute territory here. But there is a boss in Metal Gear Solid V called the Man on Fire. Um, and the only weapon that works on him is a water gun, like a literal like water gun, you know, the plastic ones you'd buy for 75 cents at the store. Like you nice. can literally develop that in the game. I would love to give Gandalf the water gun to fight the Balrog and nice. see if he can do it just like Big Boss fights the Man on Fire. <laughs> That'd be a, yeah. Like, can I, I think I want to start a new... A uh, trend of pet entry, online pet entry. Instead of like, why did the Eagles not just fly the ring to Mordor? It should be, why did Gandalf not just think to use a Nerf water gun? Like, what uh, an absolute dipshit. What a massive plot hole. Uh, like, J.R. Tolkien and Peter Jackson canceled immediately. You know, uh, I was listening to your now month old episode with Kiefer on Select and Start talking about Breath of the Wild. And when you mentioned how much you loved, um, the Rito who sings the songs of lore. Hmm. Um, I forgot what his name is. Cass. The bard. Cat. Yeah, Cass, I think that is. And uh, one thing I was thinking is like, oh, not only is he singing lore, but he's a giant eagle. Like this yeah. is like more Tolkien than I even thought was possible to be embedded into that game. But oh, but yeah, give the eagles a gun. So when Gandalf asks for a ride, they just pop him and it's like, we're not a taxi service. <laughs> Hell yes. Hell yes. That is the, the variant of uh, whatever the Unfinished Tales, uh, where that story gets properly recounted, that I want to see Jared Tolkien's ghost come back and make it happen, boy. Okay, before we get to some questions for the listeners, I'm just going to drop a random question on you. Ooh. What is your all-time favorite song? Ooh. Oh, this is so stupid because I have like a pretentious one that I usually answer when I'm trying to look cool and it's just gone straight out of my head. Uh, so instead, um, I will say it is maybe maybe kind of lately, whatever uh, it is. You can't always get what you want by the Rolling Stones. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I'll let you throw in a second one if you want to. If there's another answer you want in there. It's <laughs> Fake Palindromes by Andrew Bird, um, which is probably the best romantic song about uh, being killed by a serial killer that I think I've ever heard. Uh, and the like string accompaniment to it um, is possibly one of the nicest little bits of like mid 2000s like indie folk kind of uh instrumentation uh and it is one of these songs where i'm like i want to like put into other people the feeling that i feel when i hear this song because it's like a nice little back scratch but for your brain <laughs> oh i love that I would say my favorite songs like my like fake answer or it might be my real answer but it's not one that everyone can just like take in stride is I love that ending song from the first Metal Gear Solid game. It's called The Best Is Yet To Come nice. and it's sung by an Irish singer and she sings it fully in Gaelic. Nice. So I actually don't know what the words are, but it is legitimately the most beautiful piece of music I've ever heard. Um, I'll try to put mine and Emily's song choices in like the comments or something uh, when we go live with this episode. My like boring answer is it's Radiohead's Let Down, nice. which is a song that sounds super happy and then is a song about getting squashed like a bug. Um, it's not one of Radiohead's, I'd say, deeper songs, but it's just 
it's pleasant. It's pleasant to listen to when you feel like happy but want to die. Um, it really hits <laughs> that kind of mode perfectly. But yeah. That's a that's a well, lost art as well, I feel like, because we definitely had there was a period from like 1980 to like 2015, I would say, where we had loads of those where it's like happy, but like craving death. And I feel like we don't we either get craving death or we get happy, but we never get like the nice marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just turning into a boomer as I say this. I'm grousing about kids these days. But yeah, like bring back the cheerful, like suicidal ideation stuff that that shit rocks. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, we, we got some questions from listeners. Um, as you may know, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to get questions. If what's it called? Uh, you have questions, you can leave them in our discord. We have a mailback channel there. You can also leave them on our Patreon or in a pinch. You can always just at me or Emily, wherever we're on social media. Um, but we definitely give preference to our patrons, uh, specifically the $5 patrons and above. So uh, let's get into some listener questions. What do you say? Yes. Um, so this first one is from Sean, a.k.a. Rascal of Rivendell, um, and it is for you. Um, what is your single favorite action beat? God, I read that as Andor. Andor beat. Action beat in the <laughs> Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Um, this is a difficult one for me. Uh, I will say that I think like my favorite scenes, which are not going to be my answer here, like Gandalf fighting the Balrog, like that absolutely is incredible. But my favorite single action beat, I think, is Arwen's flight to the Ford. Um, just the absolute mastery of camera work with the Jeep shots, the helicopter shots, that one shot where the nine Nazgul kind of have like a flying V around yeah. Arwen and Frodo. I just think, I think it's some coolest just because while i love everything and i will you know go on and apologize for legolas surfing <laughs> on shields and elephant noses and all that stuff and i can't wait to defend those things to you like this is something that isn't like super cgi or uh anything like that this is purely horses people actors cameras and using the landscape and the cameras to full effect i think it is the action sequence that makes me love movies the most out of the films. So I think Ooh. that is my choice. Nice. See, I'm surprised by that. Cause I, I, I mean, the Legolas stuff seemed kind of like a gimme. So I didn't actually think you were going to go with that, but I was thinking you were going to go for like something from Helm's Deep probably. So I'm really surprised to hear uh, the Fellowship of the Ring support. Um, yeah. Interesting. And I guess that is like a really good point that you make about how like there is so much like good film magic, film craft, uh on show in in that bit that actually doesn't surprise me in the in the end now that i think about it at all if you ask for my favorite shot it has to be near the end of helm's deep where uh, gandalf has already joined the fray and he's like smacking orcs around with the staff and sword but he has this big dumb smile on his face <laughs> it's just like yeah he's like this is great i love killing orcs um <laughs> i'm not going to examine the violence any further than that no no absolutely not uh, also coming from Sean, the rascal of Rivendell, uh, for Emily, what is your favorite Tolkien legendarium moment adapted by the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Yeah, um, I was. Th- I did spend a lot of time thinking about this, but I, I think it really is. Um, I-, I think it really is the the kind of Shire writ large um, and and fellowship. I realize that's kind of cheating to pick the whole thing, but um, it is not like letter of canon i guess like it is not following every single sentence as it happened um and it doesn't need to because it's interpreted those sentences so well and like 
you know, really, um, it, it really does this this remarkable work of kind of understanding what the point of the text is and understanding the kind of intended uh, and uh, affected um, like vibes of the the kind of introduction and what its purpose is for the rest of the narrative and and just just knocks it out of the park. I mean, it is the kind of thing that you know when I think of why these movies are so fucking brilliant, it is because they start with that beautiful um bit of of the shire that beautiful shot of the shire um and and i guess to an like to kind of narrow it down to a more specific kind of moment i think it's the look between bilbo and frodo when bilbo's giving his speech and he says i'll i'm you know i'm i'll be going now and he looks at frodo and frodo looks at him and there's this knowing look um, and, and Frodo is worried and Bilbo is kind of regretful, but, you know, set in his ways. Um, and I guess that's not like a, a, a like a an actual written explicit interaction in, in the book per se. But I think it that look encapsulates an entire relationship that in the book feels so lived in because of the couple chapters of, of context that we get. And in the movies, it's just that one look is enough to kind of add that 50 years or 33 years of context to it. And it is just spectacular. Yeah, there is no way I can dispute that answer. It's one of the great places where form meets content in these films because yeah. the Shire is supposed to symbolize home, you know, what it means to the hobbits. And every time I watch the movies and we go to the Shire, like immediately my heart starts singing, like I am home. Like I feel at peace. I feel safe. I feel like I'm with my people. Um, to bring that to life is just truly incredible. Um, if I were to give an answer to this, I might say, and I know this might be contested with my co-host, but I really love how they adapted the death of Boromir. Yes. Um, even though they made it a little bit explicit, they made it into just a banging scene and yeah. a scene that's worthy to end the first installation of your epic trilogy on. Um, cause we literally named our podcast after that. Uh, so like in terms of, I don't want to say adding because I don't want to get into like a pissing contest between, you know, the books and the films. But I think it really elevated that moment for me that now, even when I come back to the books, I still can see and hear what I saw in the films uh, because of the, how that scene was adapted. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think not to give too much credence to like Jared Tolkien or what he thinks, because uh, he obviously thought a lot of batshit fucking crazy things that should just be left in the sarcophagus where he lays. But, um, you know, one of the regrets that he did express um, after The Lord of the Rings was published was that he didn't think that he gave Boromir um, as fair of a shot as he probably deserved and that he probably over-heightened the kind of villainy um, of Boromir and, and and latterly of Denethor. And I, and I think that scene in the movies is really doing what Tolkien wanted to do and didn't get the chance to in some ways. And so, like, you know, obviously we've got a whole episode where I, you know, critique it to death, but like... It is kind of doing that remarkable thing that adaptations let you do, which is like expand on the material in a in a like kind of caring uh, way and and kind of do through this new medium um, what the original work could not. Um, so yeah, I think that is a banging call. So our next question comes from Evan or Ananor of Glanamin. And for Emily, he asks, do you consume any non-Tolkien content of any sort with regularity? <laughs> yeah, the, no, this is funny because in my head, I'm still the like person who's kind of a jackass about Star Wars. I'm like, never shuts up about it because for the first like 17 years of my life, it, that was all I really cared about. That was the thing um, I cared about and was interested in. 
So obviously Star Wars. Um, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they were like talking about how they watch Rogue One all the time. And uh, and then they're like, yeah, I think I'm going to, you know, watch it for the fifth time or so before I see Andor. And I just like winced because I think I've probably put Rogue One on close to 100 times. And that's a movie that came out in like 2015, I think. No, 2016. Um, so Empire and A New Hope, I have probably seen close to the many hundreds, uh, and I've got all of the books and stuff and was just a total asshole about that. Uh, held down the Wedge Antilles tag on Tumblr for probably a good decade there. Um, <laughs> my boy Wedge. Um, but yeah, besides Star Wars, which I guess is kind of a gimme, um, I'm really into the, like, Jane Austen's writing. Um, I love, 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 love all of Jane Austen's books. Um, I like kind of a lot of the historical fiction um not not a lot of it i like some of it um the hillary mantel just died recently um and mm-hmm. my one of my favorite books of all time if not my my actual favorite book of all time is her a place of greater safety uh which is about the french revolution and in, in parts about the jacobins really um and that that kind of style of writing i love uh, and spend a lot of time reading and hunting down trying to find more of um but to be honest like there's a lot of stuff that i I'm interested in that I like do for funsies, um, like lots of games that I'll play or whatever that I don't really like talk about because if I can't find like a group of people to talk about it with, um, it it's not that it's boring for me, but like a lot of the reasons why I'm into the things that I'm into is because they have these like fun and interesting communities attached to it. And it's sort of, sort of like a social kind of component uh, to me. So uh, I'm literally just looking at my bookshelf right now being like, there are definitely other things, aren't there? And there are, but like, yeah, I just don't feel the need to get super invested in um, a lot of these things. Although I, I will never shut the fuck up about the Jane Austen stuff, even if no one ever talks to me about that. That's fine. Um, yeah, um, I do a lot of like watching period dramas as well, like the really shitty ones. Um, I guess that's not really a, a, a single type of uh, content. But yes, yeah, that kind of caps out my largely uninteresting uh, media consumption habits. Yeah, I'm mostly the same way. Everything that I consume beyond Lord of the Rings stuff is pretty much well known to our audience at this point, like all the Metal Gear Solid, anything Game of Thrones slash A Song of Ice and Fire, um, Marvel. uh, And when I say that, I specifically mean Marvel Comics, even though I've fallen off since about halfway through the pandemic. Um, I used to just consume marvel comics at an ungodly rate like at some points reading 70 to 80 issues every week um so i've read i would say conservatively twenty thousand marvel comics in my lifetime less than half are good but (laughs) it's just it's kind of the thing i mean 23 pages with pictures is not a big commitment especially when you have an app Uh, marvel unlimited is a terrible user experience but an incredible catalog of comics um so it's very easy to just jump back to like 1960s stan lee steve ditko comics and just plow through them uh so but i think everything else kind of falls under a big major ip franchise which i don't love about myself Mm. (laughs) um i don't really have like favorite authors because i just don't read much Mm. uh, which is bad also But, like, I watch movies, but not, like, with any kind of principle. Like, I only watch old movies. I only watch French New Wave movies. I only watch blockbuster movies. I try to do a little bit of everything. I try to watch foreign films. Uh, Mostly they come from Japan, but sometimes other places, including India. Um, You may have heard they have movies there in India, too. Uh, But, like, I just try to be, like, kind of, like... 
a jack of all trades, master of none when it comes to film. Like, I try to make sure I've seen stuff by other like directors. Like, you know, you were talking to Kiefer on the podcast about how he was going through a big uh, Ingmar Bergman phase. And for me, it's like I've seen The Seventh Seal. Um, And I feel like, okay, I've at least got one under my belt and I can keep kind of spreading my um, interests across because it's like I do want to watch every Scorsese movie over time. I do want to see every Michael Mann movie. Um, I definitely need to see more movies directed by women. That is definitely um, something I, I, I wouldn't say I'm bad at, but I would definitely prefer to have seen a lot more (laughs) than what I have. Um, And part of that is also what's available and how women are allowed to come up through the Hollywood system, which makes it more difficult for their movies um, to get greenlit or mass release, like the say a James Cameron movie would. But um, it does kind of bug me. It's weird to say, like, it bugs me that I have no other interest. But meanwhile, I'm doing a Lord of the Rings podcast, a Metal Gear Solid podcast, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Um, So it's not like I don't. It's just I feel like everyone kind of has a niche thing that they can refer to that no one else can really talk to them about. And I'm not sure I have that. I guess Metal Gear Solid kind of qualifies, but um, it's still fairly mainstream in terms of the realm of video games. Yeah. Well, but this is, I think, the thing that's kind of funny, because like I think what you're saying there about like movies and being like kind of a jack of all trades, um, that's kind of the position that I find myself in where I'm like, you know, I've got a couple things that I'm like willing to get really into and that have like these great communities associated with them. But like, you know, there's like a lot of I spent a lot of time like avoiding reading books at large, probably because I was wildly unmedicated. Um, and so I've kind of gotten like my like love of reading back in. And so I'm like, you know, reading a lot of the right now I'm working through the D.H. Lawrence's, which are a trip. Um, but like, you know, I'm doing a lot of that stuff. And and there's kind of an extent to which like it's not that if there's no social component, it's not worth it to me. Like it is still worth it to me. That's why I'm still doing this kind of stuff. But if there isn't like a, a kind of outlet for it that isn't just you know babbling at people who really couldn't give less of a shit like it's kind of hard to kind of maintain it i guess because i think it also is like you know um got the i I work really long hours at my work um and so i have such limited time when i'm you know in my down hours that i'm like i may as well just pick something where i know that i can have some like community interaction you know what i mean and so that kind of lends itself to not having like more niche interests but you know, you got to do what you got to do to get like what you need as a human being out of the, out of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fair. I get that. So the other question Evan had was asked towards me. Um, Technically it could be asked towards Emily, but I know their answer already. (laughs) It's have you ever met any of your other podcast hosts in person? Um, To that, I will say yes. In fact, Emily is the only uh, one of my podcast co-hosts that I have not met in person. I hope to actually fix that um, just because I want to go to Scotland. And if I go to Scotland, I would love to just annoy Emily, like show up on her doorstep unexpected. That would be really funny if you went to Scotland and didn't. I would be (laughs) so offended. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I absolutely I want to do the whole Ian McKellen. What about very old friends kind of thing (laughs) as I knock on your door kind of thing. Awesome. Because um, I am I am sure you have a no admittance sign on your front door. Because yeah, I was that's literally kind of looking and getting one today. I feel really attacked. <laughs> uh, I have met uh, my Metal Gear Solid co-host, Brian. Um, he lives in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is not very far. Sorry, I didn't mean to dox him, but I think people know that. Uh, also, the six people listening to this, you know, don't don't be mean to Brian. Um, he's actually one of the six people who might be listening to this. So That's really funny. Uh, 
But uh, he's come to visit me in Chicago a couple times. Uh, he was just here a couple of weeks ago for Riot Fest, which is a big music festival here in Chicago. And uh, we, uh, we're, we're, we're friends. I imagine I'll come down to Fort Wayne at some point. Um, so definitely met him. Love hanging out with him. Uh, my Not A Cast, ASOIAF podcast, my Game of Thrones podcast with Emmett. Um, I have uh, went and stayed with Emmett and his wife, Chloe, a couple times now. They live in... Um, the East Coast. <laughs> I realize I just shouldn't dox people, <laughs> um, but I have um, I, I have met them. I love them. Um, they are very dear to me. So I, seeing them at this point becomes uh, almost an annual thing for me. Like I want to go see them every year um, if they don't make it to Chicago for whatever reason. And then uh, I haven't talked about this that much on the podcast, but back during the old Game of Thrones days, um, I was doing a podcast called A Scene of Ice and Fire, nice. uh, which is not unlike how we cover the Lord of the Rings movies here, but we were doing it um, like less organized, more just kind of shooting the shit style, less like long notes and outlines. Um, we covered the first season of Game of Thrones and also covered a couple of seasons that were airing, like season seven and eight as they went along. Um, so it was an un incomplete project, but uh, I did that with my co-host, Andrew Mearns, who does a lot of uh, baseball writing. I think he covers the Yankees for various websites. Um, and I have met him at uh, Con of Thrones, uh, which is one of the Game of Thrones conventions, fan conventions that was going on a couple of years ago before the pandemic. So aside from Emily, I have met all my podcast co-hosts. Damn, I'm feeling uh, hashtag victimized. You and Connor both have a place to stay if you ever want to come to Chicago. Chicago, baby. Um, I was actually, I was looking at, um, why was I looking at O'Hare? Oh, I was looking at O'Hare because I was like, I can't believe this place is still like the biggest airport in the world. What the fuck is going on with that? Um, and I was like, God, I drove through Chicago probably 10 years ago now and have no memory of it besides the double layered streets near, like the double level streets near, it's not the Charles, uh, Charles is Boston. Fuck. Uh the it is the chicago river isn't it in chicago yeah, yeah it is yeah mm -hmm. uh, yeah <laughs> that was a bright moment off of me but i was like man though that that is all i remember of chicago isn't that so fucking weird that like it's one of these big awesome cities <laughs> like yeah i remember how scary the double level street was good god pedestrian ass brain <laughs> uh do you want to go ahead and uh, ask this next question or introduce it yes oh this one's good Okay, this one's from Mads, aka Alistariel of the La Salia. Um, <laughs> and the question is, what, in your opinion, is the funniest thing that makes your co-host mad? <laughs> this one's a real easy one for me, because it's literally the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. <laughs> it is something that drives Emily insane because she she knows it's fantastic. It's some of the best filmmaking ever done. And yet she can't stop hating it or at least <laughs> hating it in her own little way. So it's very fun to like talk about, Oh, this is like one of the most tremendous movie scenes ever filmed, like the death of Boromir. And then to hear you just get and not mad. Um, I would say, but you know, just to have so many takes about something that like pretty much is considered like flawless. And yep. even Emily at sometimes would say is pretty much flawless too. Um, so I would say that um, I'm, I don't know if there's anything else, but if you have an answer for me, I'll hear that while I think. Yeah, I, I do. And it's such a cop out as well. But I, but it's also not a cop out because um, I think it's the fact that you are so unflappable makes you getting mad about anything very funny, um, except for what it's not, <laughs> except for what it's like things that are fair to get mad about. But like the the extent to which something has to be annoying or ridiculous to get you to the point of being like vocally mad and 
is so like high that once that threshold has been crossed, there's almost something that like I'm like this is like um is like spotting a rare Pokemon in the wild. Like this 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 fucking rocks on principle because it means there's like something like quite serious here. And I know that's a sick thing to laugh at, but it is also like very good in a lot of ways. Yeah, like I can even think just like limiting it to like pop culture and TV and movies. I can like think of like five things that actively make me mad. It's like Jurassic World, The Rise <laughs> of Skywalker, The Kenobi Show, Thor Love and Thunder, and there's probably some other garbage in there. But like I just I'm very nonplussed about most things. Um, but I have heard that I am hilarious when mad. Yep. Um, this is probably a bit of a dated reference, but people have compared me to uh Jerry Seinfeld in that regard if anyone's seen the old Seinfeld <laughs> show uh, the very few times where Jerry gets mad everyone just kind of laughs at him or if they're not laughing in universe you can tell all the actors on set are about to break yeah. um, because they can tell that Jerry Seinfeld cannot do angry acting um, he just raises his voice and sounds like he's just losing his mind which is kind of where I go as well I think that's the thing as well, because like the Kenobi thing is so funny to me. Like I get like I totally I share almost all of your feelings on its shittiness, like just abject shittiness. But I think that one is so funny because it feels like it it represents to you like what I think um well maybe not even the prequels because it was maybe a bit young, but like I think maybe probably Rise of Skywalker was to me. Um not to say that you don't also think that Rise of Skywalker was like a, <laughs> right. a fucking disaster, but like that, like that movie broke something inside of me that like I I will never return to the person I was like before that movie came out, and like it is so funny to see you kind of go through that with Kenobi because I don't I'm not even sure that I finished Kenobi. Like I think I did. I keep having this argument with myself about whether or not I finished it, but like it was bad in one of these ways where I'm like I just cannot save any space in my brain for it, and so like seeing you get that level of like kind of rah-rah pumped up about it i'm like it is still possible to feel emotions about things that are star wars even if they are like uh, like negative emotions like what a great thing to like have proof of our next question comes from tara or elinistar rovinde did i do that right mm-hmm. um uh my actual question is for either of the hosts have they read The Last Ring Bearer by Kirill Eskoff, an alternate viewpoint sort of sequel, uh, she feels bad for calling it fan fiction, about which I have a lot of feelings, and if so, what did you reckon? I can say, unfortunately, I have not read this, though it being so prominently asked and the, just the name The Last Ring Bearer immediately sets off, I should read this kind of alarm bells, but oh, have boy. you had a chance? Um, so I picked through it like a little sky rat pigeon uh, to try and get the like parts of it that I'm interested in, namely the absolute batshit. I won't spoil any of it, but the absolute batshit ending for Faramir, uh, which is something I, I feel a lot about. Uh, so context for The Last Ring Bearer is um, in, I, I believe it was published just after the fall of the Soviet Union. So when Russia had been kind of seized by Western capital uh, and uh, had a bit of a, let's call it, lax approach to international copyright law. And so you could publish a lot of things uh, that were uh, like obvious breaches of, of copyright law. And, and it would be kind of hard to get any sort of like enforcement of that copyright law. Uh, and The Last Ring Bearer is a, let's call it, revisionist approach to the story of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it says, what if uh, what if Gandalf and Aragorn were the bad guys and they were these sort of like horrifically feudalist aristocrats who, um, you know, were were essentially putting down Sauron and Saruman's industrial revolution? And what if they were doing everything they possibly could to effectively 
um, force back the 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 necessary turn of the tide. Uh, if you take sort of like a, a kind of Marxist or like Whiggist view of history, which says that like a, 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 a an industrial revolution slash a liberal bourgeois revolution is necessary for moving from feudalism to to capitalism, and if you're Marx, that added capitalism to communism, uh, and um, it. it um, it, it, it's 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 interesting it's a, from what i've read so far it is certainly um i don't want to say brainy but it's certainly very creative uh in a lot of ways and i think it's the exact right kind of thing that i want more people to be doing when they're reading things because he basically takes this approach of what if all of the people um it, all of the characters in this book this beloved story were actually the bad guys and we really don't actually have to change a huge amount about what they're doing and what they're saying we just have to say what were the other guys in this situation thinking and that's such a smart way of approaching um anything really um and and really kind of an interesting um point of view for uh, an adaptation uh and i i do actually it is on my stack of books that i need to sit down and read because it's one of these things where i'm like god i can't wait until uh, you know, the copyright on Lord of the Rings runs out and I can do my own uh, insane version and it would be good to see that. But yeah, uh, it is... God, we should cover it on this because it really is just like... It is everything that I kind of say jokingly about uh, these characters, but like taken seriously. And I think that's such a... Yeah, God. It is a rock and roll idea. Um, I'm not sure fully about the execution yet because I haven't read it in full, but man, what, what galaxy brain thing to do. I'm I'm gonna task you with putting this in our air table for Patreon potential episodes. I will absolutely read it if uh, it's worth doing a podcast about. So, Hell yeah. Tara, we might not have been able to answer, or I might not have been able to answer your question, but I think you have probably just gotten a free Patreon bonus episode all about <laughs> it coming your way at some point. Um, this one is from Johnny, aka Lothman of Palinka, uh, and he says, "Serious, hard-hitting, journalistic quality question here for Manu." What do you use as your hair care product? Because that hair is on point. Because so few people will be listening to this, I get to reveal the truth. Um, I am balding quite a bit, but it's almost completely in the back. So like people cannot see it. Even I cannot see it when I look in the mirror. So I look like I kind of have a lush head of hair on top when I really, really don't. But um, as for the products I use, I... At this point, I mostly just stick with a leave-in conditioner most of the time. Nice. Um, just because that's kind of how I do it, and I comb over my hair to the right. I can't tell without a mirror. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I do use like a mud or like a um, a pomade if like I'm actually going to like a formal event and I need to make sure my hair holds in place. Um, I wear, I, you know, I have my hair like generally short on sides in the back in addition to the balding, and then I keep it just long enough up top so I can do a little comb over with it. Um, so I don't need a lot. Um, if we do another one of these questions, please ask me about my skincare routine. Cause I like am close to the 10 step K like K beauty Korean nice. skincare regimen. Um, uh, a lingering effect of my previous relationship. Um, but I am kind of spoiled with some of my face products, but I will save that for a different episode. Emily, how do you do your hair? Uh, I wash it with head and shoulders and then I brush it. Um, and that's it. Um, I'm the worst person in the world for hair stuff. I got a haircut the other month, four weeks ago. Yeah, a month ago. 
Um, and I was literally like to the lady cutting my hair, I was like, I need you to do whatever you need to do with my hair so that I don't have to think about it. I don't like all I need to do is like brush it. And she was like, say no more. And she did it for me. And she is like my fucking icon. So I literally just wash and brush and then put a hoodie over it because I sit in my uh, work from home office pretending to be shit to your Mark Zuckerberg all day. <laughs> Yeah, as we have, you know, we want you to ask questions and, you know, we want to do mailbag episodes. We want to answer questions before our normal episodes. Feel free to ask us about our bodily hygiene. I think that could yeah, be absolutely. some great content for y'all. Yeah, deodorant check at the start of every episode. The next question is from <laughs> Wilf, and I want to make sure I get her Lord of the Rare Middle Earth name in here before I continue. Adherian Hunoril. Ooh, that's such a good one. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, but anyway, Wilf S calls us MNE, which is like mergers and acquisitions. I don't uh, know. Uh, <laughs> uh, what location in the Legendarium fills you with most wonder? Is there anywhere that just the prospect of seeing it adapted in movie or video game form is exciting to you? Emily? Ooh, I think these are kind of two questions because I think the one that like fills me with the most wonder is Athelion in the Fourth Age. Um, we only get bits and pieces of that mostly in the appendices and I think it's fantastic I think there's like so there's just enough detail in there for like the possibility of kind of a, a, a nation of its own to to develop within that kind of territory um, I think there are there's the kind of potential if you really go full crazy like like I have months ago um, of seeing it as kind of like a Scotland kind of um, analog to like Gondor's uh, R.U.K. Uh, so there's that. That fills me with wonder. Um, that is not the place I ever want to see adapted ever. Uh, I would trust Lotro <laughs> to do it. I never want to see it on movie or TV or whatever. Um, the place I would love to see adapted for uh, movies or TVs that I would be trusting <laughs> of it being done. Um, and I know it has kind of been adapted, so it doesn't fully count. But I would like to see the Veils of Anduin done properly. Not like in The Hobbit, um, where, you know, we kind of run through it and it mostly just looks like Fangorn-ish uh, and then we're with Bayorn. But like, I would love to see properly like the the kind of northern northern part of uh, of the River Anduin in Ravanian. Like, I think that's such um, a beautifully described bit of scenery. And I think with In the Right Hands, um, it could effectively just be hours and hours and hours of beautiful, like ambient be real. And I'd be delighted. Yeah, that's actually not too far off from like what location do I think fills me with most wonder. For me, it's Mirkwood, um, nice. just because it's like it was a forest and then they had to change the name because it got too evil or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, you know, it has a lot of interesting locations in there. That's where Thandriel um, sits upon whatever his throne is. Um, I don't remember the Hobbit books or film that well at this yep. point. That's homework for next year. Uh, but uh, I just, I like everything that's going on there. I like the general vagueness of Dol Guldur, especially as it's mentioned in the Lord of the Rings books. Just like when Frodo's on certain seats and he can spy like that there are, there's something happening in Dol Guldur. Um, I really enjoy that. Um, I think it's just, there's something like to go back to talking about Zelda. It reminds me a lot of the Lost Woods. Um, so it creates, and the Lost Woods have been used so effectively in various Zelda games where it can be a place for horror, but can also be a place of mysticism and wonder. Um, it can be a place where a great weapon is held, but it could also be a place of great evil. Um, I just like the many ways that Mirkwood is kind of malleable, depending on what kind of story you're telling. Nice. And then in terms of, is there anywhere that I want to see adapted? 
I mean, the rings of power makes me say no, uh, <laughs> just because yeah. everywhere we're going. Um, I think it would just be, this is going to be kind of a cheat because I got a really good adaptation of it in Shadows of War and Mordor, but I do like the nitty gritty of like the different regions of Mordor, like the Sea of Rune, um, which I don't know if that's actually in Mordor or not technically, but like every, like the, the, sh- the mountains of shadow and mountains of ash, there's just so much like little world building that the movies kind of like basically gloss over in full and the Lord of the Rings text proper can only get into a little bit. Like we got a little bit of Darthung and, you know, through uh, Sam and Frodo going through Mordor itself. But I think it just like all the like, like Mordor as a monolith in the films, I think is incredible and might be my favorite location in the movies. Mm. But also like there's so many little regions and little pockets of it and little... In, there, there's a lot more in the nitty gritty of Mordor that I'd want to discuss. And that also kind of bleeds into your answer about Athelion, um, just because that's kind of on the precipice or on the edge of all that as well. Yeah, nice. That That's a good one as well, because I think like Mordor in particular, um, anything kind of to the east of like Minas Tirith is, is one of these places where like I don't think people give it the credit it's due as as something really interesting and not just really interesting but also like left basically untouched by the canon which means you can fill it in with whatever you want and 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 there's just kind of so much like imaginative space there like you say yeah that that's a great call the next question comes from Discmond. any thoughts on birds or bird symbolism in the lord of the rings there's a recurring description of the landscape empty of animals or sounds except for birds. In The Hobbit, there are the ravens, eagles, the thrush. In The Legendarium, it's Manwe, the ships, Erwin, Tenuviel, and Elwing. Yeah. Thoughts on this? I I was almost going to grab, there's a Homer Simpson audio bite where he says, everyone hates birds, right? (laughs) Um, And I was going to insert that in here, but no no sound effects. But uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so this is really, this is a really good question. Um, It is kind of one of these really key symbols and... Tolkien's writing that I'm not gonna lie I've ignored because I'm freaked out by birds they scare the shit out of me um knowing that their like ears are just I know our ears are also just holes on the side of our heads but theirs have like feathers around it and freaks me out oh I hate birds um sorry so I've avoided it on that basis because they freak me out but um when I saw this question I was like this is actually a very good point um and there is one thing that immediately came to mind and then something else that I had to spend a whole bunch of time researching to kind of get to um so there's a poem by Thomas Hardy who wrote Tess of the Durbervilles which is called mm-hmm. The Darkling Thrush um and that I would say is a pretty good uh like um elucidation of the kind of role that thrushes but kind of birds generally small birds generally play in european folklore northwestern european folklore mostly um which is that they kind of have this like position of being equally um harbingers of good luck and also harbingers of like dreariness or kind of um uh, like like uh less than happy placidity i guess um and um you you see that kind of motif repeated in the in 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 the hobbit for sherzies uh, and in and the lord of the rings i think the birds that we see in the silmarillion tend to be these more noble birds uh like you know we obviously get a sort of uh, origin story for the eagles um for thorondor uh and co uh but then we also get like you say the the the, the swans the beautiful swans um and uh, that kind of beautiful, noble sort of royal bird, which is, of course, befitting of the the nature of the topic of the Silmarillion. Um, 
But there's this sort of like long tradition. So this is getting into the stuff that I had to do a bit of research on just to make sure I wasn't talking absolute shit. And um, so there is a big tradition of avian, uh, avian symbolism in Norse mythology. Um, and it's actually bled or uh, developed in parallel in a lot of Celtic mythology, which is, I suspect, mostly where Tolkien was actually getting his uh, his his inspiration for this from for a variety of reasons. Um but in, in North, Norse mythology, of course, there there's like eagles. Uh, Odin, I think, is able to, to transform into an eagle. Uh, and, and is, you know, that's sort of meant to be like a rallying symbol for warriors. It, it makes them feel more courageous. Um, and then in, uh, in Celtic mythology, um, there's a lot of kind of beautiful but also grim imagery of like things like ravens which is which is also obviously a callback to like classical mythology things like prometheus uh or crows uh corvids uh, of general nature um one of my things that i think is kind of interesting though is the first thing to go um, and also the first thing to come back um in battlefields is birds um, and and in World War One, which is when Tolkien had his battlefield experience, he 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 would have been uh, fighting in in northwestern Europe, uh, where the uh, forests were quite literally king, uh, and and obviously forests are, are forests, which J.R.R. Tolkien would have been incredibly and was incredibly familiar with through his childhood and in the sort of midlands of of England, um, are you know, they sing with with birds. It is they birds are I will use a very specific word choice here endemic to forests. Uh, and when he is sent over to uh, World War II, not fully in the trenches, but damn near enough uh, to make a good story, um, you know, the first thing that flee at the sound of bullets or of bombs or of tanks or of horses is a bird. Um, and so there must have been this eerie sort of absence of birds and birdsong and, and the sound of fluttering wings. Um, and I almost wonder if the sort of relative overrepresentation of birds in um, the Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit and in The Silmarillion is sort of a reflection of the fact that these are the things, the kind of simple, um, you know, signs of, of, of nature, of, of nature kind of un, untainted that um, Tolkien will have or maybe would have um, associated with the, the sort of immediate and instant loss of of um of war uh, uh, and war in northwestern europe and and you know then there's also sort of the the literal moments in which he uses the birds to be the harbingers of war not just the carbine um but then there's also you know the the, the sound of the cock crowing uh, right before the rohirrim arrive um and using that as a way to literally trumpet the the arrival of war of battle in earnest like I think there's probably that element of like there's this kind of whole auditory landscape that Tolkien would have been familiar with in England before the war and then in in northwestern Europe during the war. And uh, I would assume a key foundation of that that auditory landscape would necessarily have been uh, birds or the lack thereof, um, which is why I think I think uh, with no evidence uh, to support this, but why I think there may have been such a like. Uh, so much uh, emphasis by Tolkien on bringing these things into his writing. Oh, yeah, I have absolutely nothing as interesting to say as Emily just said. It was interesting to me because prior to watching the Lord of the Rings films 20-ish years ago, when I had seen birds in like fantasy storing, which would mostly be like Super Nintendo RPGs, like they were generally just considered as like good things. Mm. Like they're usually a signs of hope of nature, usually like white doves and stuff like that. 
Um, and like I think of uh, Final Fantasy VI, where the world ends, there's a world-ending apocalypse, spoiler for a 26-year-old <laughs> game. Uh, and uh, what's it called? One of the survivors after the apocalypse wakes up and she wants to kill herself, but before she doesn't because a bird happens upon her island and it has the bandana of her lover or someone she had a crush on, whatever, uh, from before the apocalypse. And that gives her hope. So birds, like I just always kind of assumed it was an extension of nature symbolism. Um, and that would generally be treated as a positive thing. Yeah. So early on in Fellowship of the Ring, where Gandalf is setting Sam and Frodo on his ways, like, you know, be careful. The enemy has many beasts in their employ, birds as well. Um, that was like, oh, really? Um, and they immediately cut to like crows cawing as soon as <laughs> Gandalf rides off. So it immediately set like a tone that, oh, that's not how I'm used to birds being used. And then, like you mentioned, the crabine from Dunland um, also give that emphasis. And um, to take it where you expect me to take it to George R. R. Martin, this really sets up some of the stuff with him. Like a book is called A Feast for Crows. Mm. Um, and that's literally about the crows that pick apart the dead on the battlefield. It's the book that takes place immediately after the War of the Five Kings and all the main kings had fallen except for a couple who were you know, on the fringes of the Westerosi polity. But like, that's where I started really looking at birds as something that's a little more robust symbolically, as something that's more than just like, oh, birds are here, that's a good thing. Like birds are singing, that's, you know, a very common sign that things are good. Like in Avengers Endgame, when they undo the snap near the end, um, like the first sign that they were able to bring all the people back was Paul Rudd walking out to like an open courtyard and he could hear birds singing. Mm. Um, so there is this kind of like generally positive symbolism often associated with birds. But Lord of the Rings was really the first one that kind of showed me that it can be used in other ways, which I really appreciate. Yeah, no word. Um, and I think there's also something kind of interesting in that like um you know tolkien plays up the, the kind of majesty of the eagles and you know you know it's clear that the eagles are not a taxi service and and you shouldn't think of them thusly but like um the eagles are still kind of passive um, and they're not these symbols of like warrior status um active warrior status like they are in a lot of modern sort of symbology particularly vis-a-vis like the united states where like the eagle is the symbol of all the fucked up shit we do overseas um, and and I think that's also kind of interesting as well, where, you know, um, uh, there is this kind of underplaying in certain ways of the the kind of traditional symbolism of birds in favor of, uh, well, you know, not not unprecedented symbolism, but like kind of different and unique and more folkloric rather than sort of high art symbolism. No, I think that's a fascinating point. Our last question for today comes from Kiefer, who I just want to laud because he has this excellent podcast yeah. called Select and Start, um, which me and Emily have both been on. Um, Emily just did a great episode about Breath of the Wild, which is possibly my favorite game as well. <laughs> um, and it is just a banging three-hour episode. So if you can, please consider supporting Kiefer. His Patreon's over at Kiefer's Corner. And then his podcast is called Select and Start. Um, and it's all about bringing on guests, mostly to talk about games they love and why they're impactful to the people that play them. Um, and I think every one of his episodes, I've listened to them regardless if I played the game they're talking about. Um, everyone has been a home run. So Kiefer, I love you, my man. I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah, co-signed. Both of us. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so Kimer, Kimer, Kiefer asked on our <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> yeah, let me just praise him and then completely butcher his name. That sounds perfect. <laughs> Kiefer asked on our Patreon post, 
M talks about how Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings as mythology for England. Aside from Tolkien's home field and New Zealand, where are other real-world places that capture the beauty specific to Middle-earth? Furthermore, what real-world places would be used if a fantasy based on your life was written? Ooh, I want, okay, I want to hear you go first with the uh, fantasy based on your life. I'm really interested in this one. Oh, God, what, what would the fantasy based on my life look like? I mean, part of it feels like it kind of has to be set in Chicago. <laughs> um, it could be like a overrun post-apocalyptic Chicago, but no, that's boring. Let's let's not do like urban dystopian fantasy for my storytelling. Nice. I, I honestly, I think I would want to do something that's kind of a little more deserty and arid in nature nice. for a setting. Like, and part of that is because I am South Asian, and India obviously has large chunks of hot, arid regions. But I just think like, I don't know, I thrive in the heat. I'm a summer boy. I do better in like hot weather than cold weather. Um, and I do hate sand, but I feel like that would be a perfect antagonist for me, would be <laughs> the sand. I'm doing my Anakin Skywalker mode here. Very good. Um, I, I need to think I, I need to think a little bit more about this. Um, the Australian Outback, that might be a place specifically I might set it because it also has all sorts of mystical beasts like naturally occurring in our real world. Uh, uh, uh. Um, so there would be like a mini boss slash like chapter ending cliffhanger whenever like an eight foot spider like crawls out of whatever holes that occur under Australia. I, I don't know what happens in that country. It's, it's a <laughs> wasteland does. more or less. <laughs> that, that's why the Mad Max films are based out there. So correct. Um, as for um, where other real-world places that capture the beauty specific to Middle Earth, this is really hard because my vision of Middle Earth is so New Zealandy. Yeah. <laughs> Whew. Um, I don't know. Maybe like far north Canada, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe only just saying that to give a shout out to our friend Matt, Matty Hugh. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like you know, heavy woods, um, some in intrusion from like the tundra and um, the cold from the Arctic polar cap. Um, even though I guess that's actually kind of receding and not like pushing forward. Uh, <laughs> global warming or climate change, whatever. It's it's doing wonders for this planet. <laughs> but um, I think that would be another place. Like if I had to like create a Middle Earth place and shoot on location, but could not use either. England or New Zealand to do it, I'd consider maybe taking it to Canada. Nice. That's a really good one. That You'd get a lot of fun out of that, like great shots out of that. Like, it, what is it? Thor's Mountain or whatever? The one where it's like the perfectly straight cliff face? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, that thing gives me ugh, spooky. I'm pretty sure I'd also get like tax breaks by shooting in Canada because that's yeah. why everyone shoots right outside of Vancouver. So um, this is both smart for the production and for my vision of this piece of work. No, that's efficiency. Uh, how about you? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, so I guess like there's kind of some cheater answers to the real world places that capture Middle Earth. Um, the cheater answer is like Tuscany, because that's obviously what Tolkien was basing uh, Lake Athelion and Gondor off of. So I'm not going to go with that one. And what I'm going to go with is something that makes me sound even worse. But I should preface this with I used to live here as a child, so it's not that horrific. Um, but the Atlas Mountains in Morocco um are um just absolutely beautiful um stunningly underrated by all except for weirdo rich europeans um just these you know massive beautiful mountains um there's a place called uh iftan uh which is kind of like the midway point of the mountains and it's got this you know kind of great alpine feel to it but it's also uh decidedly not 
uh, European, uh, which I think also <laughs> means that like there's just not a huge amount of stupid shit built into the mountains or whatever that you'd have to hide uh, with creative shooting. Um, so I think that one is probably what I'd say would be the best call. And also because it's kind of like Morocco generally is kind of um, it has like a really kind of diverse series of landscapes. So you could get pretty much everything you need <laughs> in like 30 square miles. Uh, so that's good. Uh, Morocco is a great place. Um, I guess for me, like the places that be I would use based off of my life, um, I guess like the kind of horrible answers like the scottish highlands obviously because they're 10 miles away from me uh <laughs> so there's that one um i may actually cheat some more and say um shetland uh shetland islands there's there's kind of three or four of them um i went up to shetland about five years ago now and it feels like you're standing at the edge of the world because you're further north than pretty much every inhabited place on earth uh like your closest city when you were in larrick which is the capital of shetland is oslo uh and even that's like 250 miles away there are these massive cliffs that just drop off into the ocean uh, and and you look into the ocean, like look out at the ocean in the horizon to the north. And you know that the only thing uh, left there after that expanse of ocean is is the North Pole. It's Santa Claus, man. Um, and I think that like is the kind of one place beyond the Grand Canyon uh, where I've been like kind of knocked on my ass and shocked by the scope of nature and had that like uh you know the the kind of matterhorn uh romantic poet kind of experience of the sublime or whatever um but also there's a great fish and chips place in Larrick, uh, and i'd kill <laughs> for like whoever's working on the fantasy movie of my life to get to eat there uh i wish that for them <laughs> oh man it's i do think it's kind of interesting that we both kind of picked places as far north as possible yeah. <laughs> um i don't know if that ha- i don't know um what you know maybe you're thinking behind it other than what you just said of course but like for me, like mostly based on the Lord of the Rings films, like the Shire is really the furthest north you go. Yeah. Um, but like there is a lot more continent to the north, and obviously north. Um, once you get on the other side of the Misty Mountains, there's a lot of stuff, things like Erebor and all that. And it's just a place that hasn't been sufficiently explored to me because you know I don't like the Hobbit films and I don't care for whatever the Rings of Power is doing in the forward wraith or whatever. Yeah. Um. So I just think like the allure of exploring like the far north of Middle Earth and then finding a requisite location on our planet that can you know kind of help recreate that vibe is kind of what my thinking was. Yeah. And I think there's also kind of like a Rogue One effect for me because they use I think it's Iceland so beautifully there and that like. Iceland is recognizably Iceland, but like how many people can actually recognize Iceland? And I'm not saying that in a judgy way, but like nobody fucking knows what Iceland is or where or why. Um, And so they use it to just be like generic background alien location. Uh, And I think because like so because literally as a as a human species, like we're all concentrated around the equator to varying extents um the far north is still like one of these places that that you know has that kind of explorer's mystique to it and also has that kind of thing where people will look at it and not truly not know where the fuck you are and just accept it and i think that's always a good thing for a fantasy is forcing people to accept where you are at well i think that that should just about wrap us up for our very first patreon episode woohoo We want to thank you for listening. And maybe most of all, we want to just thank you for supporting us. Um, It really means a lot to us that you're invested in mine and Emily's journey across Middle Earth. And we're just kind of happy to have you. And obviously, you know, if you can get your friends or your parents or your, 
I don't know, six-year-old babies to sign up for our Patreon. We can yes. just keep expanding on this and keep doing more of these kind of fun stuff. Like I said, we'll be alternating or at least trying to alternate between legendarium slash Tolkien-based episodes with something that might be outside of that realm or just something a little more fun and carefree. But uh, we hope to bring you these episodes once a month. And maybe if we expand, we'll be able to expand that as well. Our email is my brother and my captain my podcast at gmail.com and my bro my cat my pod on Twitter and Insta. I don't know if there's any point in plugging <laughs> anything else because you're already on the $10 feed. So everything that we have for you, you are already enjoying. I am Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Uh, because it's a Patreon episode, I'm going to spare you all my plugs. And um, I'm Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, and I will spare no one. So my bad joke for today is uh, I'm JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, uh, where I will be uh, reading. No, this isn't even going to be funny. Fuck it. Patreon episode. Uh, I'm not funny anymore. See you all later. We'll call this episode the death of comedy. <laughs> Uh, you just want to stop recording there? Yeah, I think that's good.